Well, I would have your attention drawn back this morning to Ephesians 1. I hope you will not tire of hearing from this portion of Scripture. Ephesians 1, we'll read once again, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings, blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were first, excuse me, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord, our heavenly Father, sovereign ruler, we come before you this morning and we we seek to praise your name. We seek to lift you up. We seek to to come before you in in wonder and adoration as we seek to see you from your word. Lord, that we would see what a precious redemption, what an amazing miracle it is that we who are lost, who are sinful, might have a ransom paid for us, that we might be redeemed from the curse of the law, that we might have the forgiveness of sins, that we might be redeemed by His precious blood. Lord, speak to us through Your Word this morning. Lord, open our eyes to to see and and to, to just stand in awe. Lord, open our hearts that we might receive Your Word. Open our lips that we might praise You. Be with us here this morning. In Your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever watched someone make something or do something that almost left you spellbound? You ever experienced that? Unable to look away while you observe someone doing something, creating something. Have you ever been so enwrapped in observing that that you just can't look away? Maybe you can't look away until you figure it out, figure out what it is that's being created or how that thing is being done. I've found this to be the case in my life several times. There's a place that I used to go often as a kid that my grandparents and my parents would take me, and it was full of craftsmen. 
It's a place called Silver Dollar City, Branson, Missouri. And they would have glass blowers. They would have woodworkers. They would have potters. And to be able to sit there or stand there and watch them as they craft into something a blob of what appeared to be nothing. Clay, glass, a wood block. You know, this is still the case. This is not just a childhood thing with me. This is still the case. I've been uh, had the privilege of taking the girls to some of these places that I went as a kid. Or going up to some place like Connor Prairie or some place like that where they do things in an old-fashioned way where true craftsmen create products. You just want to keep watching until it's finished. When the girls were little, I remember sometimes they'd get tired and they'd want to go, right? You'd be watching maybe the potter at the wheel. Now Belle would absolutely love that because she, she loves that type of craft. And the Lord has blessed her with a gift for creating that type of craft. But I remember sitting there in the, in the pottery uh, places, uh, you know, in some of these places, and, you know, you would look at the, the wares that they were selling, but you'd go over and you'd find that potter in a, on a wheel, and he would be making these things. And the girls, when they were little, would be pulling on you, trying to get you to, you know, come away. Or, or the glass blower at Silver Dollar City, taking this blob of glass, this molten blob of glass, and creating this beautiful work out of that. And I always wanted to stay and see it until it was finished, to see how it all ends. Have you ever thought about how amazing it would be to be there in history when Christ performed some of his miracles? Have you ever thought about that? To watch or to gaze upon him, to be mesmerized where and when he worked and how he worked when he performed these miracles. The wedding in Cana, his first recorded miracle. To see him dealing with his mother and dealing with this situation where at this wedding they ran out of wine. And to have him tell the servants to go fill up these pots of water with water and then him to create wine from the water. To view, to see this miracle. Maybe in there in Capernaum toward the beginning of his ministry as well, where he was teaching in the synagogue, and this man with an unclean spirit just appears and says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come here to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Can you imagine seeing that? And then Jesus Christ rebukes that spirit, and that spirit flees. How about when he cleansed the leper? When Jesus was full of pity and reached out and touched this one who no one else would touch. And he said, I'm willing, be clean. And the leper became clean at that moment, and he left doing what? He was glorifying God. Or what about the time when Jairus approached Christ? One of my favorite miracles recorded that Christ performed. 
Jairus, this ruler in the synagogue, who had a daughter. And Jairus was so heartbroken and sick over the sickness leading to death that his daughter had, that he sought out one who he probably, by his position, should not have been seeking out. In truth, he should have always been seeking him out. But the rulers of the synagogue didn't have much to do with Jesus. But he sought him out. And he said to Jesus, my daughter is is sick, she's dying. And he wanted him to come and heal her. And eventually, there were some that came from Jairus' household or some of his friends, and they said, don't bother this teacher anymore. You know, your, your girl's dead. And Jesus said to them, she's just sleeping. Can you imagine being there and seeing Jesus say this and then laugh at Jesus Christ when he said those things? And then to follow him as he continued on to the house and go over there to her bedside and to reach down and say, little girl, arise. And her eyes open and she rises from her deathbed and lives again. What about the man? I I listened to a message by Mark Webb. I I listen to a lot of Mark Webb's messages and always try and see if he's got a new one since he's, he's retired from ministry now or from full-time ministry. But he preached one recently on the greatest miracle. And he talked about this this man uh, that was lowered into Peter's house. This man was lame. He was unable to walk. He was paralyzed. I'm sure we could not have looked away when this man was lowered through the roof on his bed and Jesus said to that man, Man, your sins are forgiven. What in the world? is Jesus getting ready to accomplish here. His sins are forgiven. And there were some some of the, the Pharisees there and the scribes. And in this strange twist of things that is often the case when Jesus deals with mankind, they are asking him questions and they 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 who are you to say to this man that his sins are forgiven? Only God forgives sin. They had no clue standing before God the Son. And so he says to them, so that you may know. I'm going to show you that I am the one who you said has the power to forgive sins. And he says to him, rise, take up your bed. Rise and walk. And this man rises and walks. What an amazing thing to behold. To set our eyes upon. Or maybe we would have been transfixed as Jesus spoke to Mary and Martha as they grieved over their brother Lazarus. To see their questioning glances at Christ as Christ told them to roll the stone away. Well, he's been dead. Four days. Lord, he stinks. Nevertheless, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And out walks Lazarus from the grave, still in his grave clothes. Living at the, at the power and the command of Jesus Christ. Think of all these miracles that would have just transfixed 
your gaze. Not being able to look away as Christ did these things as he walked on this earth. We as human beings don't often get to see behind the curtain. Right? There are things going on and the power of God at work that we don't often get to see as a tangible, physical thing. I believe that this, you know, that's the case with these miracles. We read about them and by faith we believe them. We've been given the word to record them to us. And we see miracles going on around us on occasion. We see God perform miracles in the lives of in, in healing, in providing for needs. You know, I think about the case with our church. This may be God providing for us something that is needed by our church. But I believe that the, the greatest miracle of all is the miracle that all those miracles pointed to. They were a fulfilling of prophecy. To prove to those he was showing and to us through his word who he was. Who he was. And I believe that the greatest miracle that we can read about and experience is the miracle that is recorded for us in verse 7 of Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption. We have redemption. Turn with me real quick to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to read verse 3 through 12. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father. Notice how similar this is to how he started Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by the power, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them 
that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which the angels long to look. Things in which the angels long to look. Now we'll probably return to this passage a little bit later in our in our uh, series on Ephesians, but I, I want you to notice something remarkable here in verse 11 and 12. It was revealed to the prophets that they were serving not primarily themselves in their time, but those who are having the good news of the Messiah who has come preached to them. This message of salvation, this message of redemption into which even Angels long to look. These angels who surround the very throne of God, literally from what I read in researching this, the original language means that they gaze with outstretched necks. James uses the same verb in James in reference to a mirror being fastened to something and a man would crane his neck Stretch it out to see his face in the mirror. This is how the angels are described looking at this miraculous work of redemption for God's chosen people. Those predestined to adoption, those brought into the family, united by Christ, by the redemption that Christ has accomplished through his blood. This is the way they long to look into this. Like we would long to look at some of those things that we previously talked about, but in much, much greater detail. Even angels long to look into this great work of God. Ephesians 3 in verse 10 tells us, so that through the church through what God is doing in redeeming the church, His plan for the church, which is the people of God, those called out, those chosen, those set apart, those that are redeemed, so that through the church the manifold, of, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." This great work of redemption planned before the foundation of the world as we, as we have seen. We've, we've dealt with this earlier. This plan before the foundation of the world to redeem a people. So great a work is that, that even the holy angels won't avert their eyes from it. But they long to look into these things and to see what it is that God is creating through this process of redemption. Well, what is redemption? If this is such an amazing miracle, what is redemption? Redemption in Scripture refers to a deliverance. And it's a deliverance by way of a ransom price. It's a payment in order to secure the release of something or someone. It is the idea of paying what is required in order to liberate 
someone from oppression, enslavement, or some type of binding obligation. Here in our text, the deliverance obtained by the redeeming work of Jesus Christ through His blood is the deliverance from the guilt of sin and the curse of sin by the ransom that Christ Himself paid or the redemption price paid for the guilt that we have have acquired through our sin and our sin nature. Why is it, if a redemption price is paid, why is it that that payment is necessary? What is this payment for? Our text tells us that it is the forgiveness or the clearing of our trespasses. What is it then that, this, that, that, that is entailed by this trespass? What is it that is, is this debt that is owed? Well, mankind has fallen into a deeply dreadful state. When Adam fell, we all fell. Adam, as our federal head or as our representative, sinned and fell into a state of sin that was then passed down to us. It is an inherited sin nature. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then in verse 18 he states, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. We have inherited this sin nature through our ancestor Adam who fell in the garden, who was cast out of that place. We read about in Genesis, Genesis 3, where they fell and placed under sin unto death. He was our representative who took of that tree and ate of its fruit. And it's through him that death has passed to all of us. Spread to all men. It's like some great disease that all of us have inherited through a genetic disposition or a genetic flaw. We all have inherited this sin nature and the end result of this disease is death. There's no getting around it. This sin that was committed by Adam was a sin against God. It wasn't a sin against Eve. It wasn't a sin against the serpent. It was a sin against God. Ultimately, this was against the decree and revealed will of God. Do you re- you remember what happened there in the garden? I'm sure all of you are are very very familiar with this. But God told them, told Adam that he could only eat, or he could eat of any tree in the garden except one. There was only one tree that was forbidden to eat of. And it was this tree that Adam took and ate, and it was as if we were in him taking that fruit from that tree and eating it for ourselves. 
That's what it means that he was our representative, that he was our head. We were in him. We were in him when he committed that sin. We have now a sin nature. We have death that is upon us because of him being our representative. We all came from Adam. Because of that, we are now placed in a position of having a sin debt to God. The creator and the ruler of all things, the one who has the right and authority to declare what we are to do and what we are not to do, has said, you shall not. And we in Adam did what he said, we shall not. Interestingly, if you remember David's penitential psalm, Psalm 51. He says in Psalm 51, 3 through 5, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. He says something very interesting here. He says, Against you and you only have I sinned. Talking to God. Against you and you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. David isn't saying here that what he did with Bathsheba wasn't sinning against her or her husband Uriah. David isn't saying that he didn't wrong Uriah when he put him out in front of battle, in the battle, and then pulled the other men back so that Uriah would be killed. He's not saying he didn't do wrong against Uriah when he murdered him. What he is saying is that it is God who declares what is right and what is wrong. So in the end result, he sinned against God. God has said that murder and adultery is wrong. So David, even though he wronged and sinned against Bathsheba and against Uriah, ultimately, it's his sin against God. And that's the sin that he will be held accountable for. David's getting down to the real heart of the matter when he says that. When he says, against you and you only have I sinned. And you also see there what he says, that he, he was brought forth in iniquity. He is telling us that we're born because of his relation to Adam. He was born with this sin nature. He was born in sin. Brought forth in iniquity. Born in debt, born in sin, inherited this nature, and from his birth he's sinful, from his birth, he is alienated from, from God by this sin, and something must be done to provide cure for this condition. And it is in that way that we have inherited sin. We keep on incurring more and more debt in our lives by way of sin. We have a sin nature, and we sin against the holy, righteous God of all things. 
First John 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we don't sin, we are liars. Because God says we're sinful. There is not one of us who is born into this world that is not born into this state, that has this debt that is owed. And the payment, the ultimate payment for that debt is death. Romans 6 tells us that we are slaves of sin and the wages of that sin is what? It's death. For those that think that sin is really not that bad, it's really not that severe, I want you to look around you as you drive around. I want you to think about something. Every hospital that you pass, every cemetery that you pass, every battlefield that you visit speaks to us of the severity of sin in mankind. One of my favorite pastors from history, a man that I deeply admire, Horatius Bonner, he wrote in, in one of his, his books, in, in some of his writing, he wrote something that, that I want to share with you this morning. He said, if sin is such a surface thing, a trifle, as men deem it, what is the significance of this long, sad story? Do earth's 10,000 graveyards where human love lives buried tell no darker tale? Do the millions upon millions of broken hearts and heavy eyes say that sin is but a trifle? Does the moaning of the hospital or the carnage of the battlefield, the blood-stained sword and the death-dealing artillery proclaim that sin is a mere causality and the human heart the seat of goodness after all? Does the earthquake... The volcano, the hurricane, the tempest speak nothing of sin's desperate evil? Does man's aching head and empty heart and burdened spirit and shadowed brow and weary brain and tottering limbs not utter in a voice articulate beyond mistake that sin is guilt? And that guilt must be punished. Punished by the judge of all not as a mere violation of natural laws, but as a breach of the eternal law which admits of no reversal, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Do we understand what a dreadful condition we as human people are in? We have this condition... And we are unable to make payment for our own souls to be delivered and freed from the curse of sin. This is why each and every one of us needs a Redeemer. We have a desperate need for one to redeem us, to free us from the bondage of our sin, to make a ransom payment, to deliver us from that one that we're in bondage to. Bondage from the chains of death and from the wrath of God whom we have sinned against and we have all done what is evil in His sight. God sees into our inmost being. 
does he not? There is nothing hidden from his sight. Nothing at all. So where do we find a Redeemer? Our text tells us in him we have redemption. Is it any wonder that Paul breaks into praise here in this first chapter of Ephesians? It's in him, it's in Jesus Christ, and it's through his blood. This is our one and only Redeemer. The concept of redemption is seen all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old, it's often shown in a foreshadowing sense or a type or a typical sense of that Redeemer who is to come. In the New Testament, things are made a little bit more clear, a lot more clear. The Redeemer is fully revealed to us. The mystery that we're going to get to here in a little bit, this mystery is now made clear and we see Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. God in His infinite wisdom, we go back to where what we've already looked at in Ephesians, before the foundation of the world. God in His infinite wisdom for His own pleasure and for His own purpose devised a way that we, His people, could be placed in Christ Jesus. Just as we were in Adam as our representative, He has made a way that we can be in Christ as our representative. Turn to Romans 5 with me. Romans 5, beginning with verse 12. And I forgot to start my, time, start my timer, so I'm trying to pay attention to my watch. Beginning with verse 12. Therefore, this is, this is the concept, and this is Paul more fully developing what we've been talking about here. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one that was to come. What he's talking about there is that he was our representative, and we will have another representative. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, as one trespasses led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the in Him we have redemption that we read about in Ephesians. Christ was not of Adam, was He? He was not. When He became flesh, as John talks about in John 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, when He became flesh, He was not born of man that He should inherit this sin nature. He was born of the Spirit, born of a virgin, without sin, so that He might be a pure and holy sacrifice. He was not only born without sin, or in terms of what we have been saying here this morning, He had no sin debt, He had in Himself an inherent righteousness as well. Not just a lack of sin, but also a righteousness. He had infinite worth to be an acceptable sacrifice to God the Father on behalf of those for whom He shed His blood. And it is blood that must be offered, is it not? Is this not the picture that we have all throughout the Old Testament in the sacrifices we see over and over again? These sacrifices that were symbolic and types of the true sacrifice spoken of in our text here in Ephesians. Leviticus tells us, for the life of the flesh, Leviticus 17.11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. This implies a substitution of one life for the other life. A death of one in place of the death of the other. Hebrews 9. One of my favorite passages of Scripture. Hebrews 9. Starting with verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing what? Eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, 
He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Nor was it in verse 25 to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have to offer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. By the sacrifice of himself, by his own blood, he has obtained eternal redemption. Christ once for all, offering himself, shedding his blood, and the work of redemption was finished. Is that not what he cried from the cross that we read earlier in John? It is finished. This blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, is the only way for sinners to be saved. The justice of Almighty God must be satisfied. It must. It will be satisfied by a substitute or it will be satisfied in Him pouring out His wrath for eternity on those who are outside of Christ in eternal punishment. His justice, His wrath must be satisfied. And there is no hope for us in ourselves and it is that for that reason that God Himself gave nothing less than Himself. God the Son, to be our substitute, to stand in our place and bear the wrath of God the Father for our sin as Christ shed His precious blood with which He has paid our ransom. He has paid the redemption price. He purchased for us redemption through His blood and purged us of all unrighteousness. His infinite worth in exchange for our filthy rags. To secure for us eternal redemption. His payment, His blood satisfied the Father. John tells us that God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's just a fancy way of saying that Jesus Christ satisfied the Father. His payment was satisfactory to the Father. He took our place. He bore the wrath for that which we had incurred our debt. And He experienced death that we might have life. Isaiah 53. Precious, precious passage. Isaiah 53. Is there any doubt that Isaiah could have been talking about Jesus Christ? Isaiah 53, verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men, men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, what flows out of wounds? Blood. By his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and turned. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led for slaughter and like sheep before its shearers is silence. Silence, So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Is it any wonder that Christ before his death on the cross and before his resurrection spoke of his blood in the manner in which he did? In Matthew, as they're gathering to have this last meal together, and he took a cup, And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink all of it, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for what? For the forgiveness of sins. I don't think we could have gone on here in Ephesians without looking at this redemption. This precious, precious miracle. There's no grander theme, no more magnificent miracle than that which takes place on the cross of Christ when He shed His own blood for His people to obtain redemption for them. Apart from anything they did, He obtained it for them. Purchased for them the forgiveness of sins and cleansed them with His own blood. Do you remember in Revelation, Revelation chapter 7, when we did some studying in Revelation here a while back, we, we dealt with this. Beginning with verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, Isn't what this in this what Jesus told them to do? Go into all nations making disciples. 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And John says, I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. He's redeemed us by His blood. There is power in the blood of the Lamb. There's power in the blood of the One in whom we have redemption through His blood. This is the thing that we should never get out of our sight. Never. I hope our eyes will ever be transfixed in wonder and in adoration of our Lord and Savior who came to give His life a ransom for many. Who shed His blood for the redemption of those the Father gave Him. If this be not the case, we have no hope. We're lost and we're undone. But God who is rich in mercy, but God who made of Himself a sacrifice. God who made a way that redemption and forgiveness would be possible and still uphold His holiness and His justice. Man could not have come up with this. This is of God. This is a miracle. This is a thing most worthy of our setting our gaze upon and will be the reason that we cry out as they did in Revelation 7, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And if there are some here who have never been washed in the blood, if you've never experienced in a real and meaningful way this redemption, pray to God that He will visit you with conviction of sin and showing you through His Word the guilt that lays on your head, the burden that lays on your back. Don't despise the conviction of sin. Don't despise it. Don't shrink away from it. This conviction of sin in and of itself is a great gift of God's grace because it drives you to the foot of Jesus Christ and His cross where He shed His blood to redeem us from sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, the forgiveness of sins. There is a ransom that may be applied 
to deliver you from your bondage to sin. We sing a we sing a hymn. One forty two. Written by a guy named William Cowper. William Cowper was a contemporary of John Newton, was a acquaintance of John Newton. He wrote many hymns, uh, wrote a hymn book with John Newton called the Olney Hymnal. Man deeply, deeply scarred with depression all his life. Um, tried to take his own life multiple times. But what always got him through was thinking about this redemption. I'm sure that was a huge part of it. Thinking about this redemption through the blood. And he wrote this song called There is a Fountain. I don't often end a, a message with a hymn, but this, this is beautiful. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all, not some, all their guilty stain. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. He made one mistake here. It's not just till he dies. That'll be our theme for eternity. And if you have not experienced this, go to the cross of Jesus Christ. Take your burdened soul to the foot of His cross and there you might find this fountain filled with blood. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for the blood of Jesus Christ who has redeemed us, who has purchased for us forgiveness, who has been our substitute, who died in our place, that we might be righteous and holy before You in Him. Lord, give us thankful hearts. Lord, give us a great desire to share this with others, that they may to be washed in the blood. That they might wear garments who have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. That they might find forgiveness of sins. That they might worship You in, in the beauty of holiness. That they might worship You in spirit and truth. Lord, give us Give us a desire to glorify you for these great things that you have done. In your name we pray. Amen.